0: Welcome, podcast listeners. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are doing something new. We are co-hosting an episode that will air on both Kingdom Roots and the Alabaster Jar. Today, we have three professors from Northern Seminary, Dr. Lynn Kohick, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones and Dr. Scott McKnight to talk about the book and the article by Josh Butler that were recently highlighted by the Gospel Coalition. And I think that there are several reasons why the three of you are uniquely able to speak into this conversation Uh, Dr. Kohick, because she wrote a commentary on Ephesians which the article was sort of based on and Dr. Felker Jones has written a book called Faithful a Theology of Sex and as a systematic theologian this is her arena and then finally Dr. McKnight has written extensively about the culture of the church and specifically abuse in the church including his book a church called Tove. So I want to thank you all for being here, and I want to give you each a few minutes to outline what you found problematic about this recent article, and please highlight for us um, how your scholarship informs your assessment of this article. And before we dig in, I want to offer a content warning for our listeners. Um, The article that all of you are responding to has included graphic sexual descriptions, and so some of our conversation will include some frank conversation about Sex, reference to intimate partner violence, and some theology which has been very bad for women. So please know that um, as we dive into this conversation. So Beth, I wanted to start with you because you wrote a piece on your Substack um, that gave us eight reasons why Butler's article was bad theology and. Uh, We'll put some, a link to some of the written pieces that we mentioned um, during the conversation in our show notes so our listeners can look it up. Um, but I would love, Beth, if you would summarize for our listeners what the original article was about and your response to it.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so the original article was just a short extract from this book that uh, Josh Butler will have out uh, about uh, the analogy between an analogy he wants to make between sex uh, and the gospel, uh, the way we think about uh, salvation. Um, and uh, it suggested that men can be thought of uh, in the Sex Act primarily as uh, generous, uh, while women can be thought of primarily as hospitable, uh, and used uh, uh, details of how genitals work uh, to describe uh, what that generosity and hospitality uh, might look like. Uh, now, that's part of uh, a bigger conversation about sex that's loosely related to Roman Catholic teaching, though it deviates from it as well, uh, which uh, would frame man as giver and woman as receiver, uh, and see that as something that uh, tells us an essential truth about the nature of of men and women or uh, masculinity and uh, femininity. Um, So there's uh, all kinds of potential problems uh, with this. Uh, And as you noted, I I wrote about eight uh, in my piece, I'll try just to highlight two or three, I think, uh, for now. Uh, The first question I have is about how we would know if men are givers and women are receivers, right? Um, So uh, the article and other people who talk this way uh, talk as though it's uh, simply clear, right? One looks at genitals and sees uh, one is forgiving, the other is receiving. Uh, But it's not that clear. Uh, For instance, women give birth. So that's a different way to interpret uh, women, even if we're trying to interpret the whole of our beings based on genitals, which I don't think we should do. Um, (laughs) How would we know, right? How do we know that giver receiver is the right uh, terminology? It doesn't come from scripture. It comes from uh, a common sense, Uh, socially located description uh, that comes from a man, right? Uh, A man's perspective, Uh, though not all men would would share that perspective. Um, So Protestant theology traditionally says uh, that's not the thing to base theology on. Uh, Experiences and interpretations of nature, uh, we should base it instead on scripture. Um, And the question is, uh, what does scripture say about what it means to be male and female? And I don't see the giver receiver business uh, there at all. Uh, The second big concern then I have is the way the metaphor works um, in uh, Josh Butler's usage really focuses in on the sex act um, at the expense of the bigger context of marriage, right? Uh, there's, there is a beautiful biblical metaphor comparing God's uh, relationship to us with a marriage relationship. Uh, the article takes that and reduces it to a, a, a the sex act itself, right? When marriage is much bigger than that. Uh, and the result of that, I think, is to uh, encourage men to over-identify with Jesus or God um, in the God us metaphor, um, because men are relatively unlikely to want to imagine themselves as uh, female, right? Uh, if they're if they're solely focused here on the the sex act, um, and to encourage men, I think to imagine that God is a lot like them, right? Um, it also then paganizes um, the way we think about God, uh, scripture tells us of a God who is transcendent and holy and other and impossible to capture with one metaphor. And so it gives us many, many, and all of those metaphors fall apart. And God is not in the shape of a human being or a bird or a creature. Uh, And this gives us a God in the shape of a human being, a male human being, right? Male genitalia. Um, uh, The uh, context in which Israel dwelt, right? Um, Dealt with that kind of paganization of God to you. Pagan's not the right word there, but Um, uh, Lots of the idols that Israel was forbidden from making, right, were um, fertility idols or phallic uh, idols. Um, And this way of thinking about God is just reductive, idolatrous, and and deeply uh, hurtful. So um, the last thing I'll say is I have questions here about uh, what the definition of the gospel is, uh, if sex is supposed to tell us about the gospel. Um, And particularly for an organization like the Gospel Coalition, which has a really reformation-based understanding of the gospel focused on justification by faith and so on, uh, this seems to have very little gospel in it. Um, And if anything, it introduces a kind of works righteousness version of the gospel um, where sex and gender roles um, somehow be go- become how we perform the gospel, uh, and uh, there's nothing to hear about sin or forgiveness or transformation. Uh, it's it's just this kind of gooey and, and hurtful language about sex. So there's more to be said, but uh, those are some of my big uh, concerns, uh, and I know some of my concerns overlap with Scott's and Lynn's too, so.
0: Thank you for that. That's really helpful, Beth. Lynn Butler centered this article around his interpretation of Ephesians 5, and specifically the household code. Um, could you help us understand what was problematic about his interpretation of this scripture?
2: Yeah, and I should mention that I've not read the book, so I've I've just read what was put up on uh, on the internet, As and as those who know me know, I'm really uh, a Luddite when it comes to that. So uh, I... I don't want to uh, let uh, give the impression that I have this full-orbed view of what he was doing um, but what I what surprised me um, in in his depiction of or drawing on Ephesians 5 is he used language of generosity and hospitality and while those are wonderful Christian characteristics they don't seem to be um, the characteristics that Paul is drawing on here in Ephesians 5. Um, In in Ephesians 5, there's about self-giving love, Um, there's uh, thinking of the other before yourself, Um, and and there's a sense that that brings unity. What really is going on, I think, in Ephesians 5 is that the, the two are one. Right? That, that there's a oneness. So when talking, the husband is invited to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So that, to me, that's not generosity. There wasn't a, there, it's not, husbands be generous to your wives, right? That, that suggests a us and them, um, a you and me, instead of a together. And, from Ephesians 5, 25 and following, three times Paul commands the husband to love his wife. And there's no mention of head and body here. There's just mention of body, one body. The husband is to love his wife as his own body. And then the, the, the descriptions of this don't include having sex. It They include uh, eating, um, caring for the body. It's like, The husband is to imagine the wife as part of him. And implicit in that, of course, is then inviting the wife to think of herself as part of her husband. Where Paul does get, I think, more explicit in the actual sexual act is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And there, Paul, at the beginning of that chapter, says that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the term authority there is a pretty generic term in Greek, unlike uh, there's another term that is often translated authority in First Timothy chapter two. And in English we combine them, but uh, you know they can sa- they sound the same, but they're actually different in Greek. But here in uh, 1 Corinthians seven, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does everybody in Corinth kind of was yawning at this point because that's like, yeah, typical. Then Paul goes on without missing a beat and says, and the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And I am sure that someone in the back row raised their hand and said, (laughs) hey, wait, can you repeat that sentence? Because, uh, wait, that can't be the case. And in fact, what Paul is picturing here is mutuality, mutuality at the most intimate. There's no generosity and hospitality division here, there's mutuality. So that's what I think uh, was missing in the picture of uh, Ephesians 5, as well as then Paul's additional comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 7.
0: Thank you. That's so good. That's that's a helpful context for this conversation. And then, Scott, you also wrote a response to this article in your own Substack, and you gave three considerations about the culture that produced this book. Um, can you help us understand the Christian worldview that produced this book and that also promoted this book?
3: Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, amening. Uh, sitting here, what Beth and Lynn have both said. So you know, I'm just going to uh, rally behind them uh, with a few a few barkings out from the back row, as it were. But um, I know Josh Butler, and uh, and I've had a good relationship with him uh, in the last few years. I haven't been in communication with him, so uh, I was. Profoundly surprised by this piece I read the excerpt I, I gotta tell you, Chris tells me about this stuff So, I'm not quite a Luddite But I I don't pay attention To this Twitter world much And Chris tells me about what's going on With with Josh Butler And I thought, wow, he's a nice guy I wonder what he's been saying And she says, oh man, it's it's really getting ugly So I, I sat down And I read the TGC article By Josh Butler And then I read it again and Chris asked me what I thought, and I said, "Ho hum, I've heard this kind of stuff for years from complementarians." So uh, then I began to think about, you know, people are really upset about this, and I thought, well, I don't think this is brand new stuff, though. I I'm not aware that much of John Paul II's theology of the body, as as uh, Beth may be, and I'd like to, I'd like to wonder aloud if. People like Josh Butler and complementarians like uh, John Piper and Owen Strahan, if they even read John Paul II's theology of the body—are they reading it? I know uh, a certain pastor in Wheaton uh, does read this book, sort uh, and misreads this book. But that's—that's that's, when I read it, I thought to myself, "What in the world is going on uh, with all this opposition?" And it's not because. I didn't agree with the opposition. It's I was sitting here thinking about the outrage. Uh, why did this outrage occur? And this, this is what I would say. My first uh, thought was, this is a common, even if singular, uh, description of the complementarian worldview. And it is something talked about in that world all the time in similar type language. And because seemingly everybody agrees with it, he can get by with that in that world in a way that everybody goes, yeah, this is what we think. And yeah, Josh is cooler than some of us and he uses more graphic language maybe than some of us. I doubt that it's, um, I I would guess that other people have used similar type language as well. Um, but, um, I thought this, this can only happen, the outrage and what we saw, because of the cultural world in which this arose, so that it's a complementarian worldview. I, I consider complementarianism an ideology—I know this sounds harsh—that creates, uh, let's say, an ideology that uh, allows men to get what men want. With religious or a theological sanction, uh, and I, I really believe that's true in in many facets of the way they talk about it. So I thought, first of all, this is this can only happen. The outrage can only happen because uh, it's a complementarian worldview, and this is what these people believe. And so I, I would say this again. Uh, I was shocked that the Gospel Coalition didn't double down and defend this as this is, this is what we believe, this isn't a problem. And instead, they erase the guy and think that they're communicating that well, this is not what we believe. But they have not apologized one whit for what he actually said. They apologized for posting it. The second thing is, this is important to remember. The Gospel Coalition and this complementarianism that exists in American evangelicalism is in a silo. They talk to one another. They are friends with one another. They blurb one another's books up the gazoo. Um, They all think one another's grand and fantastic. And when you offend them, they completely cancel you. And if you line up with all these ideas, they stand with you, and you're one of the good guys, and you're a part of it. Um, So the, the silo is what created this problem. As a silo, when Josh Butler's ideas went out into the public sector, all of a sudden, other people are reading and hearing this thinking, what in the world is going on with these people? Why are they saying these sorts of things? Why do they go, why do they use Ephesians 5, but start talking about sexual intercourse? That text has nothing to do with that. All right. So then the last thing is, I, I think that the Christians for biblical manhood and womanhood, I think people like John Piper, Owen Strahan, Denny Burke, I'm going to name names here and not give initials. Um, They are all complicit in Josh Butler's situation because this is the sort of thing that they have created the platform for. And now all of a sudden, when it becomes really clear what they're getting at, uh, we are not hearing them defend and we're not hearing them criticize. So I would say this, If they're going to take this down at Gospel Coalition, someone there needs to say, what is wrong with this piece that we would take it down? My guess is this book is going to be in print, and everybody's going to read it, and they are going to hope that this story goes away. But this was, this to me was a moment of revelation of the culture that exists in American evangelicalism, where If you say enough things, if you say something often enough, if the right people say things often enough, if you start practicing these things, eventually um, what you're teaching will become an agent with cultural power that will shape other people to think this way. Right now, there are a lot of people in the complementarianism world that will say, yeah, that's what we've been teaching. I guess I better not say it publicly but that's what we believe. And I wish they would own up to it so that we could have a genuine conversation about it rather than wipe it off their screen as if somehow it's going to go away that way. I I don't think that was the proper response. So I am uh, I was quite surprised by, by the response, uh, but it, it gave me a an opportunity to think why why was there such an outrage when, you know, some of us are aware that this is the kind of thing that they talk about quite often, and um, I think that we need to talk about complicity of the complementarian world in this kind of theology that made Josh Butler who he is and gave him a platform to get a big uh, a big book, and you know, this was an excerpt that they wanted to advertise. There are a lot of people at Gospel Coalition who must have been surprised by this. And if they're surprised, that tells us a whole lot about what's actually going on in American evangelicalism. So.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, I want to give you a chance, the three of you, to react to one another and to um, share any other thoughts or ideas that you have about this. I think one of my questions as I'm listening to you talk is, what is it about this particular um, event, you know, over the weekend, with this article coming out? What what prompted the level of uh, feedback that came out? Just the level of frustration. Um, if if this is common parlance for this group, what um, for the Gospel Coalition and other folks within that world? What what prompted the pushback? Um, so any thoughts on that or, you know, specifically for women, why were women having such a hard time with this specific teaching?
2: Well, I think, Beth, I think you touched on it really well. I think it was from a man's point of view. <laughs> as, and it was not that a man's point of view is necessarily bad, but it, the way that it was structured, it took the voice and agency away from women. Um, there was not—it uh, it, it felt so one-sided, and, and so that it, it was not only one-sided, but it, there was also a failure uh, on the man's part to really embrace his, his reality as the church. Mm-hmm. So there was just this essentializing mm-hmm. of male and female, masculine and feminine, that stopped women's voice, that gave her no agency, that in even more spoke for her. I think that's what fired people up.
1: I agree with uh, Lynns and Scott's uh, analyses there. Um, I think there's two more things that also led this uh, led to this being such a uh, live conversation uh, on Twitter. Uh, One is uh, I agree with Scott that this is stuff that's taught all the time, but the rhetoric of this particular piece was very strong, right? Um, So uh, in a way it's a pointer uh, with uh, powerful and and really disturbing rhetoric uh, to something that's often said uh, in a tamer and more respectable way. And then I think the other piece is that More than our culture was, say, five years ago, uh, we're aware of some of the dynamics that lead to abuse and violence against women. And people honed in on bits of the language uh, and bits of the understanding of reality, uh, which can be used to condone violence against women. Um, So uh, I don't think any of us have yet said outright, uh, there's a worry that this stuff leads to abuse. Um, And in fact, there's evidence that it does, testimonies of women sociological uh, studies. Uh, And I'll just give one example from the article uh, of that kind of of language. It's actually from uh, the longer chapter that TGC later posted. Um, So uh, Butler has called women to be hospitable. Uh, He's explicitly described vaginas as hospitable places. Um, And then he notes that women can be tempted to inhospitality and to churlishly closing off spaces and not welcoming guests. Um, That's language, if you're using it about a woman's sexuality that invites abuse, right? Um, If a man thinks he's entitled to admittance to that space uh, and a woman's being inhospitable, uh, violence can follow really, really easily. Uh, So I think the culture has moved to a place where where we're more prepared to call that kind of thing out uh, than was once the case.
2: And if I can follow Beth on that, one of the things, another thing that was very explicit was this language of penetration, which also is not used uh, in the biblical text, but is v- was very popular in the time of Paul. So, mm. and, and I was glad that you made the warning that you did at the beginning, because here I'll talk a little bit about the erotic nature of first century Gentile culture, where it wasn't just women that were penetrated. Um, and there were men uh, and boys who were penetrated by other men who were of a higher social status. And we have to remember that in these Christian communities, as Paul's reading this letter, he's not talking about the, the penetration the way that this book pictured sex, but he is talking to people who are abused by the domination uh, the domination structure that is sexual activity at this time. And I think Paul, in his silence, speaks very loudly to the fact this is not the picture of godly relationship. <laughs> so, and
3: and I, would, uh, I would add to what Lynn is saying, um, that in the Roman world, Roman, Roman world, Greco-Roman world sexuality, is uh, decidedly not very Jewish uh, in, its, in its, let's say, uh, holiness, in its um, concern for purity. And in the Roman world, to penetrate another <clears throat> indicated who was the dominant partner. So, so the language of penetration in sexuality... I suppose it can be used analytically and clinically in in ways that are acceptable in certain societies, in certain uh, academic journals, but it would have indicated in that Roman world domination, Mm -hmm. and that is precisely the opposite of what Paul is doing. One of the most fascinating things in the text, and Lynn Lynn is a master of Ephesians 5. Uh, I write on Colossians 4, and my passage is very short. It it doesn't have any of the controversies that Lynn has. So uh, on Colossians, one of the things that is so interesting to me is that Paul talks to wives and then to husbands. He talks to children and then to fathers. And he talks to slaves and then to masters. And the order right there is exactly the opposite order of Aristotle and the Greco-Roman world, where you would have talked to the superordinate, the person who dominates. And Paul talks to the subordinate in that social structure first, and he empowers that person. And then when he talks to the superordinate, he disempowers that person. I think this leads to a different kind of language if you're going to talk about sex and marriage. It leads not to the language of penetration and domination, but to the language of mutuality and cooperation and union. And when you talk union, you are not talking penetration or domination. You're talking about cooperation in a harmonious relationship. So um, I agree with what what uh, Beth and Lynn are saying, but I, I think that, you know, I suppose we could go on forever about some of these things, but um, it just seems like it's it's just wrong-headed and then just goes off into metaphor that all of a sudden sometimes sounds a little bit like the Song of Solomon, but the Song of Solomon never goes there. It's far too discreet for that sort of thing. So I, I just thought it uh, it violated... Christian decency and then turns it into a metaphor for the gospel which it should not have done. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you have is uh, I think it's it's hopped the rails.
1: I've had questions, you know, are you saying we shouldn't talk about sex or desire? Uh, are you saying those things don't have anything to do with God? Um, and that's not what I'm saying. Uh, the problem isn't the use of the metaphor. Song of Songs uses the metaphor, right? Uh, it's the misuse of the metaphor, and it's assigning meaning to it that is not assigned to it uh, in Scripture, and even goes explicitly against where Scripture is pushing us. Um, Song of Songs is often noted for its extraordinary mutuality. <laughs> Um, it's so mutual that you sometimes can't even tell who's talking, right? Uh, is it the, the lover or the beloved? Um, and uh, it paints that picture of, of delight and friendship uh, going together with sexual desire and and mutual joy. Yeah. Hmm.
0: I wonder, just as we're wrapping this up, if any of you want to tackle um, I think Beth has gone a little bit on this area, but the, the pagan idolatry aspect of this and why it's so dangerous to connect these ideas to God. Um, because God certainly uses metaphors of being the bridegroom and where the and the church is the bride. Like some of this language is inherent in the text, but there's something about this particular treatment that when I, even when I was just reading briefly the article, I kept thinking, this feels... Like we're we're in heading into the world of pagan idolatry. This feels very dangerous to me to to it's anthropomorphizing God in a way um, that I'm really uncomfortable with. So I wonder if you'll just say a few things as we're wrapping up about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Scott and Lynn will know more than I do about the ancient context. Um, but I do know that uh, sex was used in ritual uh, in a number of pagan uh, cults and also in uh, um, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, cultures. And both the Old and the New Testament explicitly forbid that right? in ways that turn us to a different understanding of what it means to worship God. Um, God can't be seen, uh, and sex is something that can be seen. And of course, when sex is used in ritual, people are oppressed and hurt uh, in that. Uh, Some scholars think one reason that Christianity became, in some ways, suspicious of sex was specifically a rejection of that kind of um, use of sex in ritual. Yeah,
2: and I would add that missing in all of this is the celibate life, Mm -hmm. which our Lord Jesus modeled for us, (laughs) if we want to move from metaphor to actual. Um, So we have sexual parts and we are sexual beings, whether we are sexually active or not. And Beth does a fabulous job with outlining that in her work. Um, You know, so we can embrace our sexuality, but that doesn't mean... We don't have to actualize it in marriage. the The scriptures celebrate humanity, male and female. They don't celebrate sex. That's really helpful. that for a great? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that.
3: Well, you we got the okay. Um, I think one of the most interesting statements, and Beth, Beth uh, made this. I don't know if she made all of it, but. Um, one of the problems of Christian ministers, pastors, uh, and I'll rely upon Mark Allen Powell here, is when, I, I know this is especially true of male preachers, is that when they read the Gospels, they identify with Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: When lay people read the Gospels, they identify with the disciples and the characters in the narrative. Well, of course, the preacher's responsibility many times is to sort of convey the message of God for people. So they kind of identify with Jesus. I get that. But uh, Beth was indicating that uh, in, in Butler's piece, the man identifies with Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, and yes, Paul does use Jesus as an analogy, but that's that's not the whole picture and we got to be careful where we take analogies and metaphors. But the net, the minute then that men think they're Jesus, they are not there that far from thinking they're God and that they are the ones who get to make the decisions. And now we have authority in the bedroom becoming, becoming unbelievably now the gospel itself. And, uh, I've heard more than one complementarian say in print on the online and stuff that complementarianism is the gospel. Read Lisa Weaver Schwartz's book about glass ceilings and you will see that this the gospel and complementarianism are so unified at Southern Seminary that it's hard to distinguish these two. And this makes egalitarians or mutualists Heretics that like they don't believe the gospel. Well, this is ridiculous. We should n- never be having this conversation. Uh, I mean, the conversation that complementarianism is the gospel. So I I I think that this is a teaching that I'm glad so many people called it out. I'm glad that it's out of the silo. It's out in the public, and uh, I hope that uh, complementarians listen well enough that they become more chaste in their communication, but even more that they will reconsider some of their ideas.
0: Well, I want to thank the three of you for taking some time. I know you're all very busy, so thank you for taking some time to respond to this book and article that caused such a commotion over the weekend. Um, I just appreciate you being part of this conversation and clarifying some of the details for us, so thank you. And I also want to encourage our listeners uh, with the importance of engaging in careful biblical interpretation and good theology that promotes good and healthy church culture and marriages. Um, cultures of Tove, you might say. I want to thank you all for joining in this special conversation. And I appreciate our listeners for taking the time to listen to it. And we will visit with you again in our next episode. So thank you all.